you have your Bibles with you uh, this morning, I would encourage you to turn to chapter 2 of the Gospel of Luke. Uh, The uh, scripture is also printed in the bulletin for today. Uh, If you're using a pew Bible, it's page 857. And while you're turning there, I just want to begin, take a little privilege as the preacher for the day, that um, it is an absolute honor and a privilege to be given an opportunity to come here and, and preach. Uh, obviously, it's an honor and a privilege for me to come here and preach for this particular occasion, uh, as you are considering me as a candidate uh, for the senior pastor position here at Atonement. And um, as I mentioned downstairs, for those of you who uh, had already been down there, you heard this, but as I think about the men that have filled the pulpits as senior pastors in my life, and even think about uh, Pastor Kurt, who filled the pulpit here for so many years. Uh, it's, it's just an honor to be standing here today and have this, this opportunity. Um, it's also a gift just to be able to worship with brothers and sisters who I don't ordinarily get to worship with. I have had a few occasions. Some of you may think he looks a little familiar. I was here one time as Terrence's friend from seminary and uh, got to come and worship with you and see uh, the fellowship that you all have here, and it was good. Well, before we get into our passage today, I want to uh, introduce a word to us that is a little uncommon. It's not a word we use in everyday language. Um, it's not a word that we would often hear used in, uh, in conversations, but it's a powerful word. And the word, very simply, is the word consolation. So let me hear you say it. Consolation. Very good. Uh, A good definition for this word, consolation, is that it is the comfort received after a loss or disappointment or suffering. It's the comfort that comes in the wake of tragedy and hardship. And the word in Scripture uh, for for consolation is a word perkalesis. Don't worry about that. Uh, the only reason I mention that is because it shares a, a similar root to the word that is used to describe the Holy Spirit in John 16 by Jesus in the upper room. You might remember that Jesus is going away and it is troubling his disciples' hearts. Pastor Terrence preached on this not too long ago uh, when he was leading the church through uh, those passages in, in addressing who is the Holy Spirit. Jesus was about to depart The disciples' hearts are troubled. Jesus doesn't want their hearts to be troubled. He wants them to understand the great advantage that it is that he goes away so that the Spirit, the Comforter, would come, the paraclete. And so that's the the similar word, uh, similar root of this word that we are going to be encountering today, consolation. It was good for the disciples that they would receive the comfort of the Spirit, that the Spirit would come and assure their souls that God was at work even though Christ was not physically present among them. And by that measure, they would be encouraged, and the sorrow that they felt that night would be turned and overshadowed by rejoicing and true shalom in the assurance that God was at work. So, you see, when we come to this word consolation as it's used in Scripture, it has weight to it. Consolation is often bound up in the assurance that God's people have that God is at work, even in the midst of unsure times, even in the midst of deep tragedy. 
God's people looked for consolation in the assurance that redemption will come. That when bad things fell upon his people, that ultimately God was working out all things for the good of those whom he has called according to his purpose. They were looking for the confidence that things will be worked out, the comfort in knowing that with God's actions, our worries, our fears, our hurts, our longings would be relieved. Now, the disadvantage of coming and preaching at a place like Atonement this morning is that I'm really familiar, or unfamiliar, rather, with the context here. I don't know the stories of where you all have been. I know a little bit in conversation with Terrence of some of the stories of a few folks that we've run into, and he's told me a little bit about you, but I honestly have no idea what you have gone through in your life. But in a gathering of this size, I'm willing to bet that there is at least some of us here who have experienced a sudden tragedy or hardship or something very difficult, a challenge in life. And if that's describing you here this morning, I know that you are familiar with what it means to long for consolation, to long for comfort to begin to dispel all of the pain and all of the tenderness and hurt that has taken place. If you've ever been in a position where you received a diagnosis or had a health scare that you were not expecting, if you've ever felt the sting of a betrayal by a friend or a loved one, the rejection of an intimacy you long for that is being denied. You can no longer have relationship with someone that, by God's design, you should have very close relationship with. If you've ever been in a position where you have lost everything, lost your livelihood, you've lost your home, you've lost, maybe it's your identity, who you are in this world. If you've ever been faced with the pain of losing a loved one, even a child not yet born. It's in the midst of circumstances like these that people, everybody, not just Christians, long for consolation. When we long for consolation, it's that deep desire to have our hurts and wounds bound up with an assurance that things will somehow get better, that this is not the end. This is a feeling that is not exclusive to Christians. Everybody will experience a time in this world where we long for our pain and our tragedy to be redeemed. That's the hope even of unbelievers, that somehow this thing that was terrible would somehow turn out good. But when things fall apart and when life comes off the rails, where do we find consolation? How do we know We can have it. There are a lot of theories and ideas in the world today for how one can receive this comfort. My prayer is that our passage this morning will guide us to understand how it is that Christ, the one whom we celebrate in this time of Christmas and his coming, is the source and substance of our consolation. How in the face of tragedy and loss, he's the one that brings true comfort to our hearts. The way I'm going to approach this passage is we're going to read it 
all together, well, I'm going to read it as a unit. You can follow along. And I'll try to give us some important points uh, of background that are just important for us not to miss as we get into the narrative that Luke is, is recorded for us. And then I want to move quickly through some points that remind us of the way in which we receive this consolation in Christ. So I want to give you some handles as we go through this passage. I'm not usually one to use alliteration in a sermon, but I thought, you know, they really encourage that in seminary for preachers that don't know what they're doing. So I would just use that tactic here, and uh, maybe I'd be on safe ground. So in this passage this morning, Luke records for us three things. He records an encounter with Christ. He records an enlightenment about Christ, and he also records an outbreak in God's people of exaltation and evangelism. So just to give those to you again, he he records an encounter with Christ, an enlightenment about Christ, and an outbreak of exaltation and evangelism. Before we open up God's word, let me pray for us. Father, as we come to your word to hear your truth, help our hearts to be ready to receive it. I ask that in everything I say this morning, only what is yours for us would remain. Bless us through the reading of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's begin in hearing God's word from Luke 2, beginning in verse 22. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him, Jesus, up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer sacrifice, according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ, or the Messiah. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought the child Jesus To do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher, She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. 
She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. This ends the reading of God's word. May he write its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Before we unpack all that's happening in this passage, I just want to highlight some important things to help fill in the background, the context on this text this morning. I want to begin with a question. Have you ever noticed how it is that in the Gospels, sometimes they don't tell the same stories? Have you ever noticed how in Matthew, that's where we have the story of the wise men recorded, but it's not recorded in Luke? Mark doesn't record it. John doesn't record it. It's only in the Gospel of Matthew. And, of course, we have the story of the shepherds, which you all heard last week. And we have this story about Simeon and Anna. It's only recorded in the Gospel of Luke. It's not in the other Gospels. Have you ever wondered why it is that they're only in one and not the other? Well, I want to encourage us to understand that it's not because Luke and Matthew were forgetting details about Jesus' life and they were trying to fill in the blanks of one another but rather that they were led by the Holy Spirit to write about Christ with a particular purpose, with a particular uh, audience in mind. And so Matthew includes this account of the wise men seeking a newborn Jewish king because through the entirety of his gospel, he wants his Jewish readers to understand that Jesus truly is the king of Israel. He is the true king of the Jews. And so Matthew emphasizes that and he includes this true story of the Magi coming and visiting Jesus in his gospel so that we would understand that perspective. Luke, however, is addressing a gospel to Gentiles. In the introduction, he addresses to one named Theophilus, and we won't have time to get into who Theophilus might be. But he's addressing his gospel to the Gentiles and to those who are on the outside, those who are poor in spirit and in social spectrums. And so Luke was led by the Spirit to include stories that demonstrated that Jesus was a Savior, not only for the Jews, but for all people. And we hear some points of that in our text today. He also wants his people to understand that Jesus came not to the proud and the righteous, and he did not come in splendor and in glory, but he came to enfold in the humble and the poor, And he came in a humble way. We're meant to see this in our passage. This is why Luke begins this account with the details about Mary and Joseph heading to the temple. Luke is very helpful to us here. I don't know what the makeup of the room is, but I'm going to guess a large majority of us would qualify as Gentiles. Many of us don't practice the laws of Israel and Moses very often, probably in our homes. Obviously, we're not in Israel, so I would imagine you'd have some troubles practicing those laws. And so Luke explains and lays out very clearly that Jesus' family, they were law-abiding Jews. That even Jesus, the, the Savior of the world, born in this humble family, was under the law and was fulfilling it according to the law. And we're meant to see this in this passage. And Luke in court, uh, records another detail, which is the sacrifice that Jesus' family brings. The two doves, we might be led to think, was a standard sacrifice, the way that Luke lays it out here. But in fact, the standard sacrifice after giving birth to present your child in the temple was a lamb and a dove. The sacrifice of these two birds was an accommodation 
that God had made in the law to those who were too poor to provide a lamb. This detail of Mary and Joseph's sacrifice indicates again the humble way that the Savior of the world came into it. He came to very lowly positions uh, in life through his family. Luke continues to emphasize his theme of God finding favor in the humble by including the details of this other event that took place on that day in the temple. He introduces us to two people, Simeon and Anna. And I've often made the mistake of thinking that they were married. And upon reading this text and studying it, they are in fact not married. That's how gossip gets started. (laughs) Who are Simeon and Anna? Basically, they are common people. Simeon is described as a man in Jerusalem. There is no title or tribe mentioned about him. There is no pedigree or power that Luke wants to present him in. He is just a man in Israel. His age is not told to us. But anyone who seems to make statements in Scripture about being ready to depart from the world seems to be older. So we could probably take some confidence that he was older in life. Anna is is presented to us as a prophetess from Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. For those of us not familiar with the tribes of Israel, Asher was one of the tribes in the northern kingdom. It's one of the lesser tribes. And so here we have a a description of Anna, this woman who is of a lesser tribe uh, of Israel, one of the lost tribes, who's still being found faithful, who's still being included in God's plans. Anna, we do have an approximate age. She's either old or very old. And we don't know if she is 84 years old or if it's 84 plus whatever her marriage is. But we get the picture. She's an older saint who has remained faithful for many years. And so as an old man from Jerusalem and an old woman from the northern tribes, together they represent in Luke's gospel the favor of common people in the eyes of God. People outside of whom everyone would have expected, not from among those of the scribes and Pharisees, but the laymen. But what made Simeon and Anna special was their devotion and faithfulness. Luke writes that Simeon was a devout and righteous man. So it's not a comment about his moral standing before God so much as it is a comment about his faithfulness in the promises of God. Anna is described as one who's not departing from the temple, worshiping and fasting in prayer night and day. She's the original church lady. She's always there. They were both waiting For the consolation of Israel, which would include the redemption of Jerusalem. They're waiting for the assurance to come, for God's action to become visible and tangible, for it to begin healing Israel. Why would Israel need such a consolation? What was going on that was so bad that they needed this comfort and encouragement and longed for it? Well, the situation in Israel was pretty bad. There's not been much hope in Israel for some time. Over the past half millennium, Israel had been occupied by Babylonians, Persians, Greeks, and now it was under Roman control. There had been some who claimed to be messiahs and tried to leave the the nation out of these foreign occupations and restore it to glory, but all of them failed. To make matters worse, there was a foreigner ruling over Israel whose name was King Herod, Herod the Great. And he thought it was his uh, privilege and prerogative to put his personal touch on rebuilding the temple in Israel, messing with its original design and the expanse of its courts. Religion 
in Israel had eroded into an outward legalism of self-righteousness. And to top this off with the reality that God's glory which once filled the temple, which was a manifestation and a sign to Israel of his presence and favor, it had stopped appearing a long time ago. Israel's chosen people of God, they were just a shadow of what they once were. But even after 400 years of relative silence, Luke introduces us to these two people, Simeon and Anna. These older saints in a time when it's so dry and so stale in Israel spiritually, he tells us of these two beautiful people who are still holding on in faith. They're still waiting for the promise of God to come and desiring to see God at work and to begin his restoration and bring glory back to his people. They had no stature in society, but they were favored by God. I just want to highlight all of that. It's it's important for us to understand Luke's emphasis on the uncommon character found in this common man and common woman. And God blesses them with a wonderful gift, which we are invited into through Luke's recording. So as they are waiting for a consolation, they receive an encounter with Christ. Luke tells us that God chose Simeon, this humble man of great devotion, to reveal a wonderful promise. In verse 26, he says, And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Can you imagine what it meant to Simeon to receive that promise? To know Even though that centuries had gone by and people have been longing to see this happen, Simeon, you, I've chosen you. You're going to see the Christ before you die. You will see the Savior and know that God is working. That promise is something that Simeon was given, but when? When would it be fulfilled? We don't know how long he'd been waiting for this promise to be fulfilled. We don't know how difficult life had become for him as his body may have aged. We don't know how difficult it may have been to keep the hope alive as days turned into weeks and months and years and maybe even decades passed on and still there's no sign that the Messiah had come. It's likely that he had been waiting for years for this to be fulfilled. How does he keep his hope alive? I don't think that uh, anything humbles our fast-paced world more quickly than the waiting that happens when things are out of our control. Doesn't that just humble us? We're so used to next-day delivery, instant messaging, but then when something's out of our control, a minute can feel like a year. And add to that a situation that feels hopeless, where despair and tragedy and suffering has taken place and the anguish that can be felt in those waiting moments. That's where Simeon finds himself in those days where it can be so hard to endure and face another day. But Luke tells us that the Holy Spirit was upon Simeon, and no doubt it was the Spirit who was keeping Simeon's faith in the promise strong until that day when he would see the Lord's Christ. And so Simeon waited And Luke brings us in on that day when this encounter took place. It's on the day that Jesus is being presented in the temple. And the spirit which has been upon Simeon directs him into the temple. And when he sees the child, he takes him into his arms and blesses God. Luke tells us of Simeon taking Jesus into his arms. And you can just imagine 
for this older man, what emotions must have rushed over him in this moment to be able to not only see the Christ from afar, but to be able to hold him in his arms and look into his eyes. The thing that he has been patiently longing for for all these years has happened. And he declares a very personal response in this encounter to the Lord. He says, Lord, now, at this time, you are letting me depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. And what did salvation look like? It looked like a baby, just a little over a month old. You can imagine that Simeon probably had to support Jesus' head and neck at this point in his development. And his parents, two poor people traveling in from Bethlehem. To people around Simeon, he must have looked crazy. To think that this was the promised Messiah of all people. But in that day, Simeon was declaring that this little baby, an infant of two poor parents, is the Lord's salvation. John Calvin has a great line in his reflections about this moment in Scripture where he basically says, Simeon did not see Jesus with the eyes of the flesh, but with the eyes of the Spirit. The Spirit of faith enlightened his eyes to perceive mean and poor dress through all of that, the glory of the Son of God. That through all of the ordinary and humble ways in which Jesus was presented to the world, the Spirit enabled Simeon to see the majesty and glory of God in that little baby. And so it's during this Spirit-led encounter when Simeon's eyes were enlightened to the identity of Christ, the Messiah, that he enlightens Mary and Joseph about their son. And so Luke gives us an enlightenment about Christ. Mary and Joseph knew that Jesus was special. They knew that he was God's son, but they still had relatively few details about what he would become and how he would accomplish all that God had intended for him to do. And God uses Simeon to reveal a little bit more of the plan to them. Simeon says that the salvation of God has been prepared in the sight of all people. Simeon is not narrow in who salvation applies to. He's very clear, and I think this is why Luke records this for us. He's very clear that salvation was for all people. That Jesus came not just for Jews, but even for Gentiles. And this is emphasized when Simeon goes on and says that Jesus will be a light of revelation to the Gentiles. Non-Jewish people who had no revelations that God would show them any favor or that God would work on their behalf. That God would work in their heart and redeem them and make them into a people after his own image. They had no invitation to be included in God's blessings. Simeon is now speaking. That is part of the plan. Through the Messiah, even Gentiles will receive revelation and then consolation from God. By the way, the man writing this gospel, Luke, is the same one who wrote the book of Acts, which records the gospel and salvation coming to the Gentiles. Well, Simeon goes on to say that Jesus will also be a light for glory to Israel. And we have to remember the detail of where this is taking place. Remember at this very moment, they're in the courts of the temple compound. Steps away from the Holy of Holies. The place where God's glory once manifested itself to show his favor and his presence that he was working on Israel's behalf. They're at that place. And this glory of God, the symbol of his presence and favor. It hadn't shown up in centuries, but Simeon says this child will be that glory. This baby is going to testify that God is with us. 
In fact, that's why we call him Emmanuel. Luke writes that Mary and Joseph are marveling at what is being said about their son. They know their son is special, but this is new information about the expanse of their son's ministry. Simeon then blesses the parents, and he continues in conversation, enlightening Mary further about what her son will do. And he presents a hard and difficult truth to her. That though this child is the Messiah, he will not be received by everyone. Simeon says, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel. He will be a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul so that the hearts of many will be revealed. Simeon was declaring the truth that the consolation of Israel had come. The Lord's Christ has come. But not everyone would receive Jesus with open arms like Simeon would. In Israel, many people were hoping for a Messiah. Right? I mentioned that there had been people claiming to be the Messiah, hoping to restore Israel to its former glory and release them out of Roman occupation. But the Lord's Messiah was going to present a challenge to hearts that were set on that goal. Many will receive him, but we learn from Simeon that many will reject him. He will be a sign that is opposed, meaning that people will come against Jesus and speak against him. And in doing so, it will reveal the inner darkness of their hearts. How you respond to Jesus reveals the stature of your heart. Do you have a heart of flesh in which the God has softened and awakened you to the reality of who Christ is like Simeon? Or maybe you have a heart of stone that is skeptical and rejects that Jesus was the true Son of, Son of God and Messiah. We know that many of the religious and self-righteous in that time, the pious people within Israel, they should have been the ones to recognize the Christ. They were the most well-versed in all of Scripture. And yet they were many of the ones who rejected him. And in this action would reveal the darkness within their hearts. Simeon also enlightens Mary to the heartache that she will face watching her son endure these things. And as we read this foreshadowing of what will come in the life of Christ and his mother, we are left to wonder, perhaps, maybe, did these words ever bring her consolation? Did they ever bring her consolation on that fateful day? Well, rather suddenly, Luke shifts out of this tender moment, and he introduces us to Anna, and we witness an outbreak of exaltation and evangelism. Not only was this the beginning of consolation for Israel, but this was a personal consolation to Simeon and to Anna. This day which they encountered Christ sealed their faith and their joy. These two older saints, the joy and assurance they received could not be contained. It was a gift worth the wait that they would have an opportunity to meet Christ before they died. Anna begins giving thanks to God and began telling him of all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. In other words, like-minded people who needed to hear this good news, who knew the longings for consolation and comfort. She wanted to tell them that Jesus had come. 
When Anna sees and hears what has taken place and witnesses the Messiah, she is filled with praises. I mean, her, her fasting and her prayers have now been rewarded. And she's so filled with joy. She shares the good news with the faithful few around her that were waiting for God to act. And as she and Simeon praise God and share this news, it must have seemed strange. You know, it must have seemed strange for those who are around them I mean, seemingly nothing had changed in Israel. Rome still occupies. Herod still rules. Religious leadership was still anemic. And yet they rejoice because they received a consolation, a comfort that God is at work. So what does this passage show us about how we can receive consolation and God's comfort? That day in the temple, Simeon and Anna saw the comfort of Israel. He had come. It was not only the comfort for God's people, the consolation for Israel, but it was also a consolation for them. It was personal. Simeon was ready to leave this world because all he had ever wanted for and waited for, his deepest hopes and longings, he received on that day. He had full assurance that God had not given up on Israel. We might be tempted to think that Simeon had a greater revelation than we have today. After all, he was able to see and hold Jesus. He got a very clear calling from the Lord through the Holy Spirit. You will see the Christ. The Spirit led him into that temple and revealed Christ to him. And so we might think that, you know, as he was able to hold Jesus in his arms, that his revelation was more tangible or more real. But what did Simeon see? He saw a little baby. Jesus had done no signs. Jesus had done no miracles. He had taught nothing. He was a little baby. All Simeon had was the assurance through the spirit of the great things that this child would do. And it brought comfort to his soul, consolation to him that he was ready to die in peace. You see, Simeon and Anna, they did not get to see how God worked out his consolation. But they got to see who God would use to bring consolation. The Holy Spirit led them to encounter Christ. The Spirit gave them enlightenment about the great things that Christ would do, even though they would not see those things take place likely in their lifetime. And yet, they were also led to learn how not everyone will receive the blessings of Christ. And so these two saints were filled with joy and peace, and they praised God And give him exaltation. And they share the good news with those who needed to hear it. The truth is, we don't know how much longer Simeon and Anna were living. We don't know how many more years or days or decades they had been waiting to see this consolation begin to take shape. To be worked out in Israel. But they always had this day to revisit. They always had these revelations that could be refreshed and revived in their hearts through the same spirit that led them to that place. They always had the consolation of this encounter to give them peace and assurance that God was at work. What a gift they received to have an encounter with Christ that day. And God offers us the same gift. The same spirit can confirm in our hearts the presence of And truth and power of Jesus Christ. Not by looking and holding him as a baby. But by hearing and reading of him 
in the eternal truth of God's word. The same spirit that made it real for Simeon makes it real for us. The same spirit that enlightened and revealed to Simeon the expanse of Christ's work, how he came to bring salvation to Jews and Gentiles. It's the same spirit that works in our hearts, revealing to us Jesus, the child born in a manger, presented at the temple, but also the Savior of all people, and especially the Savior for me and for you. It reveals to us Christ as the one who paid for our consolation, made way that we could receive comfort and encouragement with the price of his own life. The Spirit reveals to us he is the risen Savior who is seated in heaven and now even works to bring healing and redemption and resurrection life to the most dead and barren parts of our lives and our world. This is the gift that we can receive. It reminds me of the sentiment and emotion that Paul writes in Romans 8. When Paul writes, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. He goes on to say that we who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we eagerly await our redemption. It's those feelings of longing for consolation. But we have this promise and assurance in Romans 8.28 that we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, who are called according to his purpose. Why? Because the Spirit has revealed Christ to us. And so just like Simeon and Anna, even though we may not see how God brings these things about, because we see the one who will bring them about, we can have assurance and the Spirit can refresh in our hearts that encounter on that day that you may have had years ago that maybe has grown dim, grown dim and maybe faded in its glory and bring it back with fresh fire in ordinary ways. I don't know where you are this morning. I don't know what you've been through. But God gives us a real opportunity to receive an amazing gift a gift that's worth the wait of true consolation, true comfort through our union and identity in being one of Christ's people, one of the people he came to save. We can't expect to know the comfort of, of knowing everything that God will do and exactly how he will bring consolation about in our lives, but we can have our hearts revived and our faith built through the true comfort an assurance that comes with an encounter with Christ and knowing who it is that brings these things about. So this morning, if you have never received Christ and the assurance and the comfort he brings sounds like a strange thing to you, I pray that you will know that assurance soon. For those of us who do know what it's like to have this peace and assurance to receive this comfort from the Lord and the security that binds up your heart, We should be praying for those who have not yet heard. And we ourselves, we should revisit that day when we encountered Christ. Maybe you'll know when that is. Maybe it's been a long season of days where Christ has been revealed to you. But recount that that time and remember the goodness and peace that we received when we encountered him. It's what this table is for. It's a table which the Lord has given us to come 
and to encounter Christ afresh, to be renewed in our faith and spirit. And so in preparation for this table, it would be good for us to sing together. But before we sing together, I would like to pray for us. Father in heaven, I thank you for your goodness and your love. I thank you for your grace and the power of your gospel. Thank you that you use ordinary people like Simeon and Anna as a testimony to us of the endurance of faith in the promises and for the satisfaction that can be had, not having all the answers, but at least knowing one answer, that Christ is the Lord. We ask that we would be refreshed in this truth even as we prepare to partake of the Lord's Supper and commune with him this morning. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.